My dad used to tell me, every time you open your mouth, you are advertising who you are. Every action is a billboard showing the world the type of man that you are. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Welcome to King Me Ministries podcast, episode number seven. As always, if you find this useful, go ahead and share it. Somebody else might be looking for some of the same content that you're hearing. If you have any questions, reach out. I'd love to have those conversations with you. Recently, over the last few months, uh, several people have been reaching out to me and they're just saying, can you help me know Jesus better? What does that look like? It's my intent to look through the book of Mark over the next few episodes and really look at the words that Jesus said. In doing so, we're going to see what was important to him, who he loved, what he was hoping to accomplish. We can see his mission. I hope you stay tuned in this one and you look forward to the next ones. Let me start off today by making a pretty bold claim. I believe that the entire Bible is the inspired word of God. 20, 30 years ago, that wouldn't be such an audacious claim, but it is today. But let me say this, by faith, I take God at his word. He says that his word is inspired, that no prophet thought this up or dreamed this up, but they were given this by the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'll be the first to admit it that some of the Bible is hard to understand, It's written over thousands of years and by about 40 different authors, and yet the entire message stays the same. That message is this, God created. Man stepped out of bounds and sinned and rebelled against God. The consequences of that rebellion is separation from God. But God, in his infinite love and grace, sent Jesus to take that punishment that our sins and rebellion deserved. God's word says that he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And those that place their devotion and trust through faith in Jesus are restored into a right relationship that will one day culminate in our eternal existence with God. Paul Washer has shared a story of a time where he was speaking at a university and a student stands up and asks the question, How can one man suffer for a few short hours and restore every willing human being back into a right relationship with God? How is that possible that one man can do that? And Paul says with tears in his eyes, he says that question is his most favorite question. You see, he says, that one man who suffered for a few short hours, if you were to take everything in the universe and place it on a cosmic scale and then place Jesus on the other side, Jesus outweighs them all. You see, it's not just in the way that he suffered and died. Yes, it had to be a brutal death, but it's more about who suffered and died. You see, it was God who suffered and died for those that had wronged him. When we sinned, we didn't sin against a neighbor or a small town mayor. We sinned against the Lord of glory. We sinned against our creator. Hebrews 10.14 says this, Jesus, by one sacrifice, made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Eugene Peterson in the message says it this way, The cross was a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person 
to perfect some very imperfect people. That's the message of the entire Bible. The longer you study it and you allow God to open the scriptures to you, the more you come to realize that the entire story from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus and him making us right with God. It's remarkable to me that when you see the Bible, you see the first three chapters. It's beautiful. The first two chapters, really, where God created, God spoke everything that is beautiful into existence. And then chapter three is the account of man messing that up. And starting in chapter four, or even at the end of chapter three, it's the story of God fixing what we broke. All the way to the end of Revelation, that's what's happening. That's the story of the Bible. There's no doubt. The Bible can be difficult and confusing at times. My wife is brilliant, and when something in the Bible doesn't sit well with her, when she can't get her mind around something, I can often tell right away and how she fidgets and mutters. It's, it's endearing. While I can admit that when I don't understand something in the Bible or flat out just don't want to get it, um, I have to admit, I have to, to start from the place where the problem lies with me. It's my inability or my finiteness, not God's word. The problem is me and not with God. When I was eight years old, I decided to follow Jesus. And in a church service, I remember it vividly. There was just an opportunity for me to acknowledge my decision to follow him. My parents were there. They were not Christians at the time, but they had purchased a Bible for me. At eight years old, I had a Bible. And I had that Bible on my shelf until just a few years ago where I, I didn't read the Bible anymore. It was, it was sort of like a, it's just an older version. And when my wife and I decided to build our house, we had this beautiful idea of let's take this Bible and let's, let's bury it right in the center of our house, right so that the foundation would be right on top of it, so that our house, in, in, in a silly way, would, would be built on, on the Word of God. And to know my wife is to know that she doesn't do anything halfway. She had taken a picture of the, the, the Bible and the inside cover with what my parents had written, and she put it in a two-way frame, and it hangs actually right on the post, right above where it is buried in our, our basement. That Bible had a unique feature, maybe not so unique, uh, as I've always looked for Bibles that would have the same feature. And the feature I'm talking about is, is they would always have Jesus's words in red. Jesus's recorded words were, were written in a way that they would stand out from all the other words. And I'll say this, that when I have a hard time understanding what God may say on a topic or how to treat a certain type of people or how to respond, how to lend money, how to, how, to, how to do just about anything. When the Bible seems to be gray on an issue like that, I always tend to find, well, what did, what did Jesus say about that? And so I find this, this extra little bit of love for the red letters of the Bible. And as we spend a few episodes going through the book of Mark and really looking at what Jesus said, looking at those red letters, it's my hope that we get a clearer picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus and to want to imitate him. I think it was Rob Bell early in his ministry who said, my prayer for you is that you would be covered in the dust of your rabbi, that you would walk so closely to Jesus that you would be covered in the dust that comes up from his sandals. That's my hope as we look at his words, that you would see a clearer picture and gain a, a better understanding of who he is. 
My wife has a rule. We cannot be the first people to arrive, and we certainly cannot be the last people to arrive. We need to be somewhere in the middle. That puts her at ease. She doesn't want to be the first one on scene, and she doesn't want to be seen as being late. She tried to tell me it's because she's Puerto Rican, but in reality, she just gets a little anxious about being that first person. Um, she's articulate, she's intelligent, and I know without a doubt that she can hold a conversation with just about anybody. She just doesn't like that introduction part. Once that's done, uh, she's good to go. Most of us can relate. We are intentional in how we dress and how we act for those first impressions. You know what they say, you only get one shot at a first impression, and most of us want to make the best of that shot. Most of our first impressions happen without the opportunity to plan what our first words might be. But not Jesus. Jesus' first impression, Jesus' first recorded words were well thought out and very intentional. The setting for Jesus' first words are this. He's about 30 years old. He's been on the earth for that long. And John the Baptist, who's about six months older than him, who was prophesied that he would prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah, he baptizes Jesus, and immediately Jesus is led into the wilderness where he is tempted for 40 days by Satan himself. And when Jesus leaves that 40 days of temptation successfully, having not given in to the enemy, Jesus decides at that point it's time to start his own following. Oftentimes, uh, students of a rabbi would choose the rabbi and say, you know, I like what you say. I want to be a student under you. Jesus, who has always been uh, the opposite of, of what we would expect, he decides that he's going to pick a handful of men to follow him and be his disciples. And in the process of Jesus calling those disciples, we have his first recorded words. Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. In that first statement from Jesus, you hear four things. First, you hear Jesus say, the time has come. And then next, the kingdom of God is near. And three, our response is to repent and then to believe the good news. I don't know how you feel about UFC, uh, the ultimate fighting championship, but I love it. I love uh, watching those good fights, those pay-per-view fights. There's a running joke in our house, and it's more true than not, that we'll pay $70 and then fight to stay awake to watch that last fight. Occasionally, you'll get a good fight here and there in the middle or in the prelims, but most of the time, you're waiting for that that final fight. That's, that's why you're paying that money. That's why you're staying up late. And if you've ever watched it, when you get to that moment, you'll hear Bruce Buffer, the ring announcer, he'll scream, it's time, right before that main event. It introduces what everyone there and the millions around the world are tuned in to see. It's the words that introduce the last fight, the last act. Here, Jesus is saying just that. To those that are looking forward to the promised Messiah, it's time. It's referring back to the Old Testament and all the prophecies that the promised Messiah would come. Jesus is saying, that time you were waiting for that moment in time where you are looking towards, well, that time is now. It's time. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. 
This was no accidental date. There are no coincidences with God. God had this day planned since before the foundations of the earth were even laid. Like a child crossing those early days off a December calendar anticipation of Christmas morning, this day was looked forward to. The time had finally come. Jesus claimed that the kingdom of God is near. This kingdom that Jesus represented is very different than the one that the people of his day wanted and expected. They knew their history books. They knew very well the stories of being oppressed over the centuries, and even then, they felt the pain of the occupation of the Roman Empire as it was in their face every day. They wanted a Messiah who was like King David. They wanted somebody ordained by God who could crush the Romans and make them leave their land and once again restore the nation to a world power like God did through his servant David. Jesus made it very clear to Pilate as he stood arrested and facing his own death on a cross. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus came to reveal a new kingdom. It was a central concept of all his teachings. Its focus was not on the liberation of Israel from its enemies, but on the reign and rule of God in heaven and now on earth, and God making those on earth fit and qualified for restored relationship with him through the death and resurrection of his son. Jesus was unveiling a kingdom that would do more than conquer the Roman Empire and send them running. His kingdom would set up a restored relationship. Jesus was unveiling a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom where the oppression of the Romans wasn't the biggest problem. He recognized that the biggest problem facing mankind was their rebellion and sin to their creator. And he would set up a kingdom where anyone who wanted could be restored back to their relationship with God. He came to introduce a new type of kingdom, one of love, of mercy, of grace, of unity, of humility, one led by a servant who was willing to pay the ultimate price to set his people free, a kingdom whose king was Jesus. Jesus said that the kingdom was near. It was introduced by him. It was illustrated by his life and through his teachings. That kingdom was near, and it would continue to come. The best way that I have heard this explained is through the illustration of a train. When a train first arrives at its station, it has arrived, even though it's rolling to a stop until all its doors are in line with the platform. Jesus' kingdom arrived when he arrived, and over the past 2,000 years, it's continued to arrive and expand its influence and rule in the lives of its citizens. Jesus says that the time has come and that the kingdom of God is near. And then he outlines two key prerequisites to being included in that kingdom, one of repentance and one of believing. Jesus makes it very clear that repentance is part of entering into this new kingdom that he's revealing. This word repentance is not a new word. It's not a new concept. We see the same word, the same call from John the Baptist earlier in this chapter of Mark, and it's the same call from the prophets of the Old Testament. Repentance is a radical change in one's attitude and mind towards God and sin. It's a U-turn, a 180-degree change in direction. It is turning and moving away from the things that you used to love 
and turning and moving towards something that you used to hate. Walking away from old lifestyles, those that are explicitly outlined in God's word, and turning towards and following the very God you have avoided. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament for repentance is nakan. And I know that I didn't say that right and the pronunciation isn't important, but what I find fascinating is the literal meaning of that word. It means to have difficulty in breathing, to pant, to be so grieved at your sin that you find it hard to catch your breath because you are now aware of your offensive behavior before a holy God. Let me tell you what repentance is not. It's not guilt. Guilt is conviction. It's an important part of the process, but it's not the sum of repentance. And it's also not being sorry. That's a confession. That's acknowledging that something that you did was wrong or offensive. Repentance is that first and continued step of obedience in the right direction as outlined by God's word. Repentance implies a decision to forsake sin and to enter into fellowship with Almighty God. Somebody once said that you can't have a relationship with God unless you have a new relationship with sin. If you're living in Maine and I'm in Florida and I tell you, hey, come on down to Florida and you never leave Maine, you cannot say that you're coming to Florida. You're still right where you started. And that's what Jesus is saying. You can't come to the kingdom of God unless you do leave the life of sin. That's what true repentance is. It's that first step of leaving a lifestyle that you had and heading towards a new one. True repentance cannot happen without faith, without believing. Thus, Jesus adds the second prerequisite of believing in the good news. This idea of believe means more than just believing that something is true. It means to be persuaded of and to respond with placing your confidence in. It means to be committed fully. It's like a poker hand that you hold in your grip. You are fully convinced that you have the best cards, and there is no other combination of cards that could beat what you're holding. And so you fully commit all your chips on that one hand. You're all in, fully believing and putting it all on the line. It's faith. And the author of Hebrews tells us, he says, without faith, it is impossible to believe God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Believing is about trusting God, taking him at his word, and living in a relationship of dependence upon him. Imagine somebody discovering a new kind of chair. It doesn't look anything like a conventional chair that you're accustomed to, and you are unsure initially if this will even hold you. And I can see the skepticism on your face, but you say, well, I believe this chair will hold me. I will smile at you and say that I'm not convinced that you trust this chair until you take the risk and sit in it. Trusting in that chair isn't a matter of talk. You'll never convince me that you trust that chair until you fully commit and sit your butt down and lift your legs off the ground. Then and only then will I have zero doubt that you believe that that chair can hold you. The same is true with our believing in the good news of Jesus. Until we leave our life of governing ourselves and give ourselves fully over to the rule and reign of God in our lives, we really don't believe and never will 
until we give God his rightful place of lordship over our lives. Do you fully believe and take Jesus at his word? Is your entire life tethered to his every word and claim on your life? My wife and I watched an older movie. Yeah, it was from the early 90s. Seriously, though, since when did the early 90s considered old? The movie is called Backdraft. It's a solid movie. And there's this one scene in the beginning where this one firefighter falls through the floor and several other firefighters rush and grab hold of him. He realizes in that moment that he's slipping and he resigns himself to that faith. And he says, guys, guys, I'm going. And the others respond, you go, we go. And that's what it means to believe. It's saying, if, if you say it, Jesus, I will stake this life and the next one on what you say. I'm all in. If you go, I go. And so there you have it. Jesus' first words recorded by Mark. Jesus' first impression upon the earth about what his ministry would be. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Keep in mind that Jesus' call for us to repent and believe, those are not things that we do one and then we're done. It's a lifestyle. Basically, Jesus is saying that you keep repenting. You keep walking away from sin and towards God and his holy call on our lives. And we continue to believe in one moment, and it's a lifestyle of finding what else God says, what else is important to him, and to continue to stake our life on everything he says. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its testimony to me about who you are, what's important to you, what you're like, and what I should do in response to who you are and what you've done on my behalf. Father God, I thank you that the Holy Spirit interprets that word and teaches us what it means to know you and to follow you. And I do pray for every person that might listen to this. I pray that they would get a sense of you are who you say you are. You are worthy of their adoration and their attention and their allegiance to you. And I pray your blessing on them, that you would continue to bless them by showing them more and more of who you are and how you love them and all that you've done on their behalf. Father God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, thanks for listening. I hope you got as much out of this as I did. And just as a side note, if you've never trusted Jesus as your personal Savior, I know I want you to know that you can do that right now. And the first step for me is to, is to challenge you to just say this prayer to Him and say, God, um, if you really are who you say you are, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you allow me to feel your presence and and your power? And and would you just, again, reveal yourself to me? And in that response, and and when he answers that prayer, I pray uh, that you understand that in that moment, your response is to acknowledge him, to admit that you have a need for him, to admit that you are who the Bible says you are, a sinner separated from God. And that you would acknowledge and place your trust in the finished work of Jesus who gave himself up for you. Uh, He lacked nothing and he gained nothing by doing what he did. But he simply wanted to invite you into, into his kingdom, into his love. And I pray that you ask him for all of that. And I know without a shadow of a doubt that he will answer that. 
Guys, thanks for listening. Again, I know that God loves you. He desires you. And it's my prayer that you know him and place your trust in him. Until next time, take care, guys. God bless you. Yeah.